tuning in to Microbiome Matters, a podcast for healthcare professionals and researchers brought to you by Yakult Science. This podcast aims to share latest research and insights from experts about the science behind our gut microbiome. Hi, I'm Nev. And I'm Britt. And we're the hosts of Microbiome Matters. Before we get started, we'd like to say thanks for tuning in, and we hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you're enjoying listening, we'd really appreciate if you could rate the Microbiome Matters podcast on your streaming app and share it with your friends and colleagues. This will really help us to reach more people. That's it from us. Back to the episode. Hi, I'm Niv. And I'm Brett. And welcome to the Microbiome Matters podcast. Today we're joined by Dr. Anthony Hobson, a clinical gastrointestinal scientist and chair of the Association of Gastrointestinal Physiologists section of the British Society of Gastroenterology. He's the clinical director of the Functional Gut Clinic, which provides GI physiology services around the UK in both the private and NHS sectors. He also runs an active R&D program, developing new diagnostic tests for digestive health indicators and objectively assessing new treatments for functional bowel disorders. He's published widely in the field and in recent years, this has included a special interest in small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which is what he'll be talking to us about in this episode. Thank you for joining us today, Anthony. It's my pleasure. Nice to meet you. Okay, so to start off, could you give us an overview of small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or more commonly referred to as SIBO? So what is it, what causes it, and what are the symptoms associated with it? Okay, yeah, thanks. Um, SIBO really is um, a condition that just describes a fairly simple phenomena, that you've actually got too much bacteria in part of the body which should really only have a limited amount of bacteria. So there's quite a few causes for that. So if you imagine that um, when you eat food, then um, it passes through a disinfectant process as it goes through the stomach. And therefore the bacteria that you swallow, there's quite a few in number. Um, and when it enters the small bowel, the small bowel is quite a clean environment compared to say the colon. So at the top part of the small bowel, you might have 10 to the three organisms of bacteria, whereas in the colon, you have 10 to the 11, so eight orders of magnitude more. And I think the analogy that Mark Pimentel always uses is that if you imagine that the small bowel is like your dinner plate, it should be nice and clean. The food is presented onto that plate and therefore there's very little inter interference between bacterial activity and your digestive processes. And then as the waste products from digestion move further down and they enter the colon, then there's lots more bacteria there that help us to get lots of nutrients and goodness out of our waste products. And then obviously you, you excrete them. So if you get too many bacteria in the small bowel, then what effect does that have? It basically starts to interfere with your digestion. So when you eat food, especially things that are simple to digest like sugars, then they should just go into the small bowel, get absorbed straight into the bloodstream and start giving you energy and, and goodness. But if you have bacteria in that part of the small bowel at a certain number, then they start to break down those sugars before you have chance to digest them. And when they break down those sugars, they produce both short chain fatty acids, which have a pH of about pH 5.5. So slightly more acidic than the small bowel is used to. And they also produce gases. 
And when you produce gas in the small bowel, because it's small, it can distend and that can cause discomfort and cramping. And when the small bowel is, is all grumpy like that, then it starts to change its motility and it will either try and send things back up one way. So you start to belch and regurgitate or it'll send it through quicker the other way. And therefore you'll start to get loose bowel motions. So if you think of the small bowel as this little delicate thing inside that needs to be nice and clean, and you're just going to gently feed that, that organism inside you, um, then it will work perfectly. But when it starts to get a bit dirty and it's not cleaning itself properly, then that's when you start to have problems with bacterial overgrowth. Now, the things that cause it um, can be various. So they could be certain diseases that affect motility. And what I mean by motility is how the bowel itself contracts to keep itself clean. So just at rest, then the small bowel will go into its natural cleaning mechanism. You get these migrating contractions that move from the stomach all the way down the small bowel and they clean out all the debris, the bacteria, the waste materials and pass it down to the colon. But if that motility isn't working, then you start to get a buildup of bacteria. Um, you can also get this buildup because of some medications that you're taking, say for instance, opioids that reduce the motility in the small bowel but also things like antibiotics that disrupt the normal small bowel microbiome or antacids that get rid of some of that disinfectant effects of, of acid in the stomach. Um, and also with certain diseases, things like inflammatory bowel disease that would affect how the bowel contracts normally. So there's quite a number of causes, but the, 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 the result is pretty much the same. Um, just to go on to the symptoms, the symptoms that I kind of touched on depend on the severity of the bacterial overgrowth. So most people would develop a, an element of nausea, bloating, early satiety, belching, uh, but also get some abdominal pain and cramping. And it very much depends on whether the bacterial overgrowth is at the top end of the small bowel, which would give you more of that kind of upper gut fullness, a belching, gassy feeling here and tightness or if it's at the lower end where you may get more bloating and distension sort of below the belly button and get more of an altered bowel habit. So it can happen all the way along the small bowel and symptoms vary. But the three commonest I would say are abdominal pain, bloating and nausea. That's a really clear explanation. Thanks, Anthony. And must be the um, physiologist in you giving that clear um, description of how it all works. I think that will be helpful for our healthcare professional listeners. So um, SIBO is often misdiagnosed as IBS, um, and although it is commonly, it does commonly occur simultaneously to IBS, how can healthcare professionals ensure that this condition doesn't go undiagnosed or misdiagnosed? So I think it's fair to say that SIBO is the, one of the main reasons that IBS patients don't respond to treatment. Uh, so the two things coexist and they cause similar symptoms. But if you try a dietary intervention, which we know is very effective in IBS, so something like a low fiber diet or a low FODMAP diet, then because the bacteria interacts with all of the food that you eat, if it's in the small bowel, then despite you trying to restrict the amount of FODMAPs going into the colon, uh, you still got food going into the small bowel that gets fermented. So one of the main reasons that IBS patients fail dietary intervention are because they have SIBO. So if most people now who approach primary care physicians or dietitians, um, they will go through a normal process, exclude red flags, uh, go through um, diet and lifestyle changes, 
implement low FODMAP, try some other dietary interventions. If they're not working, it's likely that they, they've got a high likelihood of having SIBO. So it's really a test that shouldn't be done in primary care. It's normally most IBS patients would be sorted out in that primary care setting. But when those treatments are not working, then um, trying to diagnose SIBO and treating SIBO so that that can be eradicated and then patients can then go on to the dietary interventions and lifestyle interventions that will be more effective is probably the right pathway. And that's why we only really see patients once they've been through that initial stage. And we always require a referral from a gastroenterologist or a surgeon, uh, you know, to make sure that we've got the proper clinical governance pathway. This is not a test you should be doing as a first line investigation because there are effective treatments in primary care. It's something that we would test for once you've tried those initial conservative measures. Um, so we know that hydrogen and methane breath test is commonly used in the diagnosis of SIBO. Could you explain to us how this method works and how you can ensure that we get accurate results using this diagnostic method? Of course, yeah. So as with all tests, there are pros and cons. But hydrogen and methane are fairly unique biomarkers of bacterial fermentation. So there's no doubt that if you don't eat anything, you won't produce hydrogen or methane. So in the passive fasted state, you shouldn't produce these gases. But when you ingest something, these gases are produced as a biomarker of bacterial fermentation. So that bit is not contentious. The contentious thing comes about how you identify where the bacteria are. So if I was to give a patient with SIBO a glucose drink, and they had bacterial overgrowth in the top part of the small bowel, then the glucose would go in. In normal subjects, it would be absorbed and disappear. Uh, but in SIBO patients, the bacteria would have a bit of a party with it, produce all of these gases, and predominantly hydrogen, but also some methane can be produced, and that would be a positive breath test. So a glucose hydrogen methane breath test is um, very sensitive. But what it doesn't do is test further down the small bowel. So it's not very specific. People who have a distal bacterial overgrowth will get a false negative response. So what we can do is use a sugar called lactulose. And that is a non-digestible sugar that travels all the way down into the colon where it gets fermented. So as it travels further down the small bowel, you tend to pick up more cases of bacterial overgrowth that are, that are more in sort of the jejunum and the ileum. Now, the contentious issue is, how do we know that that lactulose has not gone straight down to the colon and is being fermented by colonic bacteria? And the answer is, there's a little bit of clinical judgment um, and you have to be quite conservative how you measure that. So there are different cutoffs that we can use. The most conservative cutoff that we use is a rise of 10 parts per million within 60 minutes of drinking the lactulose. Um, the Americans use a slightly... Uh, more liberal cutoff of 20 parts per million at 90. The truth probably lies somewhere in between. So when we do our clinical reports, we will report positive for SIBO um, with the European guideline or the old European guideline or with the American guideline or both. And then it's down to the clinician's judgment about whether, you know, did the patient get their usual symptoms, which we track over time? Should we do a glucose test to see whether that's positive as well to give us more confidence? Or is there enough belief that the patient is a good candidate for uh, treatment? And I know we're going to talk about treatment um, a little bit further on, but treatment has been shown to be much more effective in the presence of a positive bacterial overgrowth test as compared to either empirical treatment or even more so with a negative bacterial uh, overgrowth test using those cutoffs. So the difference being, if you gave patients a treatment 
who had a negative breath test, then there are 20% efficacy of antibiotic treatment. Whereas if you give it with a positive breath test, it's somewhere between 60 and 70%. So it gives you an idea, especially when treatment's quite expensive, that it's a very useful test. But you have to use your clinical judgment, you know, be conservative, use some common sense, look at the whole picture, um, and make sure you're doing the right thing by the patient in terms of treatment. Now we can do some other bacterial uh, hydrogen methane tests to look at carbohydrate malabsorption, um, like lactose and fructose malabsorption, but we'd always do a SIBO test first, because if you don't do a SIBO test, um, then you can get false positive carbohydrate malabsorption tests, because the bacterial overgrowth starts to ferment the lactose and fructose before it has chance to digest, and therefore you get a false positive. So when we get a patient referred, we decide whether to use glucose or lactulose to get a good baseline on the SIBO. And if that's negative, we'll go to carbohydrate malabsorption. We would never do it the other way around. And I think that's important because there are becoming uh, available now more um, devices where you can test these things yourself at home, or you can order these things online, uh, you know, getting information that you think is useful without, without the sufficient scientific controls. So you may end up avoiding all sorts of different foods unnecessarily without actually getting a proper diagnosis. So I think that's just a word of caution um, is that there, there is a, a scientific process. There are guidelines now that have been accredited both in the UK and in America to do breath testing. Uh, and it's important people take that into consideration and work closely with their healthcare professionals to interpret and make decisions from those results. So you've told us about causes, symptoms and diagnosis. Uh, but now could you tell us a bit more about what are the treatment methods for SIBO and once diagnosed, which healthcare professionals would patients be referred to? If we start with diet, um, there's really no good evidence that dietary intervention helps in SIBO for the reasons that I've discussed. And there's, there's maybe one exception, which is fairly extreme, that comes at the end of the pathway where other treatments don't work. So try and think about what you're wanting to do. You know, in other conditions, if you have a chronic chest infection or other bacterial buildup, the best thing to do is to treat it with antibiotics if it's not clearing up on its own accord. So once it's been persistent for, uh, you know, sometimes weeks, months, even years, um, then it's time to try and get rid of that bacteria. So how can you do that? Now, you can use um, non-absorbable antibiotics. And what I mean by that are antibiotics that only stay within the gut themselves. They don't get absorbed into the bloodstream. And in America now, they have uh, a drug called Faximin, which is a broad-spectrum antibiotic. It isn't absorbed into the bloodstream or very minimally. Um, it works better in the presence of bile, so it's more effective, more soluble in the small bowel than it is in the colon. It does have some effects in the colon, but these seem to be beneficial because like with a lot of these old medicines, they have multiple effects. It seems to have some anti-inflammatory effects and what they call eubiotic effects, which is it actually makes an environment that is more positive for good bacteria. And you know, these, these medicines have been used chronically in people with diverticulosis um, uh, for, for many years. They've been used now in IBS for in IBSD in America for many years with very good safety profile, no evidence of any antibiotic resistance and pretty good efficacy, but they don't work in everyone. So if they don't work in everyone, one of the reasons that people relapse is that the motility isn't very good. So what doctors will then think about is adding uh, a medicine called a prokinetic. And a prokinetic is something that just gently encourages the bowel to get into its natural motility rhythms and start to clear 
clear things out and rinse the bowel out. So um, once you've eaten some food, you know, once it's going through that system, if there's any food residue in there, if you're having a prokinetic, you're more likely to empty that stomach or empty the small bowel and get the food out and allow it to go back into its resting rhythms. Now, if, if the antibiotics and the prokinetics don't work, you can use broad spectrum antibiotics that are absorbable. And these are some of the, the common medicines that you uh, might take for other bacterial infections. The problem with those are that they're a bit more indiscriminate. They do have effects on the chronic microflora and they will have some effects in the rest of the body. Uh, but if there is a chronic case of SIBO, then putting patients onto a rotating course of antibiotics when we can for until they get the right antibiotic seems to be an effective uh, way of treating some people if the organisms are not responding to rifaximin. And I think that's, um, you know, the paper published showing that recently. And of course, rifaximin is quite expensive in this country. It's about £300 per two-week prescription. Um, and some of the broad-spectrum antibiotics are, are obviously much cheaper and more readily available. So that is a consideration. But there is a concern about using chronic broad-spectrum absorbable antibiotics for these kinds of conditions because of bacterial resistance. So one of the other things that our clinicians and dietitians try is to try and starve the bugs. So um, some patients go onto a two-week elemental diet, which is a, a diet basically of um, powders and, and, and liquids that um, get absorbed quite quickly and give you the nutrients you need, but actually um, are absorbed very quickly and don't give the bacteria the, the food they need and they, they tend to reduce in number. It's quite extreme and it needs to be done carefully under the guidance of both a gastroenterologist and a dietitian, but it can be effective in some patients. Now there are um, herbal antibiotics, um, so these are substances that have shown to have an antibiotic effect, but are contained in, in, in herbs. So things like garlic and, and other products like that. These can be effective, but there aren't very good clinical trials to support their use. So some patients may uh, decide to go down that herbal route, uh, usually given by a naturopath or a nutritionist. Um, and as I say, they can be effective, but really we need to do know more about their both safety and also their um, efficacy. To, to recommend them. And one of the things we're trying to do at Functional Gut now is to, we have very robust models to test new treatments. So what we're trying to do now is take some of these supplements that are coming through uh, and try them out objectively, you know, use breath testing to try and find out if they do have an effect, look if there's any side effect profile, look at the cost, uh, uh, cost benefit of them because some of these supplements are very expensive and if they're completely useless, they shouldn't be being sold. But if we can find some um, uh, alternative treatments uh, that are safe and effective, then of course we keep a very open mind. One of the studies that we did um, last year was to look at an intestinal adsorbent, which is basically a gel that soaks up some of the chemicals as it goes through uh, and toxins as it goes through the small bowel. Um, and we want to do some more work on that to see whether that's a safe and effective treatment to help. We found about half of the patients that took it in our pilot study um, reverse their SIBO. So that's quite a promising way to, to go forward. Um, and then the question is, once you've treated the SIBO, how do you stop it coming back? And again, I will go to the point of what you're trying to do is to allow the gut to keep itself as fit and healthy as possible. So um, I think I'll talk about that a little bit um, later. But in terms of um, dietary interventions, you want to avoid uh, all of the usual things. You want to have a healthy, well-balanced diet. You don't want to be snacking all the time. You need to have good gaps between meals so that you can get your normal migrating complexes moving through the bowel and clearing things out. Uh, and you need to be avoiding things that are causing 
uh, you know, lots of bloating. If you are intolerant to certain FODMAPs uh, and, and other things, then you should probably try to reduce the amount of those, uh, even if it's just you know reducing the uh, you know, from 50 grams to 20 grams, something that you'll tolerate. So you don't get too much excessive fermentation and potential backflow of bacteria from from the colon into the distal small bowel. So there's a few things you can do there to treat, but the gold standard is still at the moment antibiotic therapy. That's good to hear about um, the interventions that are currently available, like your um, antibiotic um, pharmacological interventions, as well as some of those more extreme dietary interventions. But of course, healthcare professionals are always um, recommending those for their patients, um, depending on the situation. Um, you briefly mentioned some of those dietary strategies for longer term um, lifestyle modifications for SIBO patients, maybe post treatment or post intervention. Um, is there any way that these or any evidence that supports recovery or maintaining remission um, with these longer term lifestyle modifications? So this is something we're very interested in, which is, you know, instead of having people that have flare relapse, flare, relapse. What we want to do is have flare, treatment, remission, maintenance of remission. So what can you do so that people don't go crazy? The thing is people with SIBO have a really poor quality of life. I mean, they're absolutely miserable. They feel like they've been poisoned every time they eat. Uh, I've got a good friend who um, never had any problems at all. Uh, and he's been on long-term proton pump inhibitors uh, recently and he's developed bacterial overgrowth. And, you know, he was telling me over Christmas, he just had to leave parties early, just go and lie in the bed. He was in absolute agony and discomfort. And, you know, fortunately he had me to come to and we could test him and, you know, find out and put him under the care of a gastroenterologist and try and sort that out. But a lot of people just don't know what's going on. So, you know, I think being able to understand, first of all, what causes these symptoms and, and that it's not, you know, this is not a life-threatening condition, but it's a really life-affecting condition. Your quality of life is really poor with it. So it's taken seriously is the first stage. And then get a good diagnosis and get the first baseline treatment and try and get the effective treatment. Now, once you're at that point and you've got everything um, under control, then how do you maintain remission? So, you know, what are the things that cause it? Talk to your doctor about the medications you're taking. Um, you know, one of the things that we say is to leave a much bigger gap between meals. Because if you're constantly feeding uh, food into the stomach, then the stomach never gets into its fasting rhythm. And it's that fasting rhythm that maintains flow. And what you're trying to do to stop this coming back is maintain flow through the small bowel. So anything that you're doing to slow things down, high fat meals, um, you know, if anything that you're doing to aggravate the small bowel, like high alcohol intake, you can reduce all of those things. Um, I guess a lot of the clinicians that I know will try to implement a low FODMAP diet, at least some kind of modified low FODMAP diet afterwards, just to make sure that the amount of fermentable foods that are passing through the system, uh, you know, are lower than they normally would be. And I think that just, again, reduces the amount of uh, fuel that these bacteria might have to then proliferate again if they've not been completely eradicated. And then if things are getting better, then slowly uh, you can increase those things and just kind of listen to your body and see how you feel. But there is a quite a decent percentage of people where SIBO will relapse. Um, you know, I don't think that's a great problem because there are not many conditions that you cure completely with one two-week treatment. So there's a large percentage of people who maybe have post-infectious SIBO where they've been away, 
they've got a traveling uh, uh, sickness, um, then it hasn't cleared up, they've got SIBO, they take Rifaximin for two weeks, and then their writer's reign never comes back. So it's not a lifelong condition in many people. But in some people who might have poorer motility, it is something that might have to be managed carefully over the years. But I think one of the things that are, are quite interesting is to be able to monitor um, those patients over time and see uh, longitudinally what are the risk factors for developing that. And th these are studies that are ongoing at the moment to try and figure out if we can predict why people might relapse. And in those people, they might need either more interventions or um, you know closer treatment. So if we can start to pick up as symptoms get to a certain level, intervene before it becomes a full relapse, it may be easier to treat over time. Yeah, it's great to hear that there are so many interventions and oftentimes it has to be quite personalised um, according to how severe someone's condition is. And you've mentioned a couple of different dietary interventions that can be useful for people who have small intestinal bacterial overgrowth. Um, and while we're on that topic, could you tell us what's the research on probiotics and prebiotics supplementations in SIBO and kind of how it affects someone with SIBO and what precautions need to be taken to ensure that these don't aggravate symptoms? So this is again a really difficult question because prebiotics by their very nature um, will be fermentable mainly. Um, you're obviously going to get minerals and vitamins that you can take that um, you know are useful for bacterial organisms. Um, and I know that many companies are trying to put combination products together now that have both a prebiotic, uh, uh, a kind of nutritional and a, a probiotic combination. Um, but when you have bacterial overgrowth in the small bowel, most of these things will make you feel rotten until you get rid of it. So just because these bacteria are considered good bacteria, doesn't mean that if they're in the wrong place, they're not going to cause or aggravate your symptoms. So, you know, if you take a probiotic supplement and it makes you feel worse, then, or a prebiotic supplement, there is a chance that it could be because of bacterial overgrowth and therefore you need a test. Now, once you've eradicated that, there is a school of thought that if you do take a, you know, especially when some of these strong, more potent probiotic supplements, are you just then reloading the small bowel with, um, bacteria again. I think the evidence is probably not, um, but again, we would urge on the side of caution. And I think what we want to really try and encourage is a dietary approach to keeping the colonic microflora as healthy as possible. Um, and, you know, I notice that um, in some of the questions that we were talking about, there is a mention of the small bowel microbiome as well. And this is something that's not really been talked about very much over um, you know, the last decade or so. But there is definite evidence that in SIBO, the small bowel microbiome is disrupted with a couple of um, main players that, that, that are causing that disruption. Now, how you maintain the small bowel microbiome may be different from the colonic microbiome, but I think both need careful consideration as to which organisms you want to supplement. So generally in SIBO patients, we would rather than give um, you know large amounts of probiotics after you've eradicated them we'd rather focus on the kind of prebiotic and dietary interventions so you know this this concept of having lots of different varied things in your diet but you know not too much of any one thing so you're giving the bacterium in your colon a varied diet with the nutrients and supplements that it needs without necessarily um, you know going mad with any one region 
And it does become difficult with people who've had SIBO because they do develop a bit of a fear of eating. So, you know, they associate food with unpleasantness and pain and discomfort. So actually getting the support that they need after they've eradicated to go back to a normal diet um, can, you know, require a very skillful dietetic healthcare professional, you know, just to make sure that they're doing things with the right support. So probiotics um, in, in kind of large supplement form for SIBO patients, I would say uh, probably not a good idea. Probiotic foods, probably a good idea because they're you know, at lower concentrations and they're part of a, a natural process. Prebiotics, again, you know, um, if you can get that prebiotic supplement from your natural diet, probably better than, uh, but if you can't, you know, if you've got some food intolerances, then, you know, just start off with low levels of prebiotic and see how you go. And then you can always increase and see how tolerant you get to them. Um, but I think this interesting concept of the small bowel microbiome and how that you might help that repair afterwards is something that we're quite fascinated by and not quite sure how we're going to monitor it because it's quite hard to get to. But you would imagine doing some of the things that we talked about, such as, uh, you know, reducing irritants that you eat, uh, allowing the bowel to get its flow going and having some, uh, you know, nice varied diet. So it's getting plenty of good nutrition. Uh, that's probably a way of maintaining a healthy small bowel microbiome. Yeah, that's a uh, really fascinating area, actually, talking about the small bowel microbiome and really suggests an, a need for more research in that area as alongside the research on the colonic microbiome. Um, there is one more question that we have to ask you that we always finish an episode of the podcast with. We'd like to know what is one thing that you do to look after your gut? <laughs> I'd give it a rest, <laughs> basically. So, you know, I can't, the, the gut is such an amazing um, organ in that, you know, it has to deal with so many challenges. You know, all the rubbish that we eat, all of the bugs that we ingest, all of the chemicals. I mean, if you think of stomach acid being pH 2 and how strong pH 2 is, you know, vinegar is pH 4. And if you put vinegar in your mouth, it's very unpleasant. Uh, imagine the pH 2. So it's got to keep all of that noxious chemicals in the right place. It's got all this food coming in. It's got all this bacteria, it, you know, constantly under threat and challenge. And it deserves a rest because... You know, it likes to, to shed its lining. It likes to move things through. It likes to give, um, you know, everything a good clean out. But if you're constantly challenging the gut. So, you know, I like to do a bit of intermittent fasting, um, you know, at least sort of 12 hours, um, once or twice a, a week without uh, eating. During during the day, obviously, you, you fast at night. I don't ever eat too late at night, um, you know, unless we've got some kind of social engagement. But, um, you know, I think that is the important thing is the gut will look after you if you if you look after your gut. So give it time to rest, to relax, to clean itself before you keep piling things in. Um, just like every other part of the body, it needs time to recover. So that would be my um, my one tip. I think that's a new one. Yeah, a new one, a good, good takeaway as well. Um, the rest and I suppose that natural... Um, nighttime fast period is is important don't do anything just rest have a bit of water and uh, let your gut do its uh, do its thing yeah that's a great one thanks Anthony and thank you so much for sharing your insights today it's been really interesting to hear about um, GI physiology um, SIBO and also to hear about the functional gut clinic as well and how um, how your work fits in um, with the clinic nope thanks for inviting me thanks for tuning in for more information and to sign up for future episodes of our Microbiome Matters podcast, go to yakult.co.uk forward slash HCP. Mm-hmm.